0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee. I'm a PhD candidate in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University. And it is my absolute pleasure and honor to be in conversation today with Professor Paisley Cura on his brilliant new book, "Sexes As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity, published by New York University Press this year. Professor Kira is Professor of Political Science and Women's and Gender Studies at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Professor Kira has written widely on transgender issues, including on topics such as discrimination, sex reclassification, and the transgender rights movement. He is the co-founder of TSQ, or the Transgender Studies Quarterly, was a founding board member of the Transgender Law and Policy Institute, served on the founding board of directors of Global, Global Action for Trans Equality, and sat on the advisory board of Human Rights Watches LGBT Program. Professor Kira co-edited the book with Shannon Minter and uh, Richard Zhuang, Transgender Rights, the first book on the movement for trans rights, which won the Sylvia Rivera Award in Transgender Studies and was a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award. Professor Cura received an MA and PhD in Government from Cornell University and a BA Honours in Political Studies from Queen's University in Canada. He also teaches for Columbia University's Institute for the Study of Human Rights. Today, we will be in conversation with Professor Cura about his new book, "Sexes as Sex Does: Governing Transgender Identity." Welcome to the New Books Net- Network, Paisley.
2: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you so much for being here. Uh, could you begin by taking us through your intellectual journey um, that led to this book?
2: Sure, that is a great question. So I have been working on transgender issues, you know, since the 1990s. Um, I got my PhD in 1994. um, And I was working on it, uh, you know, I was interested in it as a scholarly activity, but I was especially driven by uh, as a my interest in transgender rights activism and a- advocacy. So I was doing things like founding the Transgender Law and Policy Institute, and then also kind of writing writing articles uh, about transgender rights claims. So that that's where I started out, and I was pretty, um, you know, that was back in the day thinking a lot about non discrimination and how do we get transgender people included in the law. Um, And it was very much a rights-based strategy, a reformist strategy of making sure that trans people couldn't, you know, be fired because of something about their gender identity or gender expression, you know, didn't conform to what people expected. And, you know, I worked on legislation um, in New York City and New York State, which didn't pass just until a couple of years ago. and you know, was trying to get work on stuff at the federal level. So that was my activist, um, my activist uh, impulse to do the work. And I actually think being a being an activist and advocate for tran- transgender rights has really helped my 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 thinking. And in terms of this book, I had been working in the city uh, on trying to get the New York City's um, policy for changing the sex classification on birth certificates reformed. Um, back in the early days of this century the city's policy was that you could get a new birth certificate if you had proven you had had what they called convertive surgery. I think they kind of meant genital surgery. Um, and then the new birth certificate wouldn't actually have a box for sex, cl- sex on it. So everybody else would have an M and an F and trans people wouldn't, <clears throat> which in a larger sense is kind of cool because it takes sex out of the, off an identity document. But since trans people were the only people who didn't have the sex box, it kind of uttered them as trans. So I was working with advocates Uh, and other researchers on that um, policy. And at one point I was invited by the city to serve on an expert committee and give advice. And through like years of working on that as an advocate and also studying and writing about it, I kind of had a long, slow, aha moment when I realized that the advocates and the bureaucrats and the policymakers were really talking past each other we kept talking about like what's the correct definition of sex you know sex can really only be fairly kind of operationalized as as uh, as gender identity that's the only kind of just way to do it and here's a lot of experts about how central gender identity is and we tried all this evidence and experts and what sex really is and the governing officials were actually interested. They often didn't articulate it exactly this way, but they were more interested in like what sex does, like how it changed, uh, how any particular definition would change the work of a particular government agency, and what effect that would have. So that, um, so that is what uh, uh, part of part of my intellectual journey. I'll stop there. I can I, I can I can talk more, but I'll I'll, I'll stop for a second.
1: Right. Um, in this book, you interrogate the category of sex and its classification, misclassification, and, and also manipulation by the state and, and evidence its rigidity. Could you talk a little bit about the dangers of such categorization
2: and, and what looking into it reveals? Um yeah. So one of the things that I had thought of as an advocate was that, you know, sex should be defined as gender identity. And eventually the government should get out of the business of putting sex on documents and keeping track of people's sex. And I still think that's true. Like, insofar as the government's going to keep track of people's sex, we should, it should be M or F or X. And the long term, no one should have sex on the documents. But over time, I began to realize that that was like um, a lot of advocates myself included, didn't really have as okay. thorough understanding of like the state as we needed to unpack unpack what the sex classification actually did. Because it turns out that it wasn't just about harming transgender people, or it wasn't even necessarily the intention was to harm transgender people, though it was the effect, but that sex classification were built into the very architecture of government and so because the states for such a long time had used distinctions between men and women to make sure um, men for the most part got more things than women did. So when we took on sex classification from the very limited perspective of transgender rights advocates, we're actually kind of looking at a, a whole larger um, uh, systemic issue around you know gender and um, the use of gender to distribute resources.
1: Right. Um, You write and I quote, sex classification policies, while most certainly public, are also intrusions into the innermost sanctums of the private sphere. Unquote. Could you elaborate on this for our audience?
2: Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. I was, you know, I've been talking about the book and I've been talking to folks in different parts of the United States, you know, various AM radio stations. And one fellow from New Hampshire was like, you know, why, uh, Why should trans people be able to change their sex classification? And I try to turn it around on the fellow who is nice, but, you know, a Republican. I try to turn around and say, do you really want the government telling you what your gender is? Like, is it okay for the government to say, oh, you know, John, your gender is female. You know, Susan, your gender is male. Um, So because so sometimes I make the analogy um, because everybody likes not everybody, but many people like to make the sex and gender comparison with race. And I understand politically why that could be useful because they want to kind of like, you know, coattail on the the, the rhetoric and the strategies of the civil rights movement. But I think in terms of gender, I think in terms of gender, it's much more useful to think of the analogy as religious belief. Um, uh, in the sense that like the government shouldn't be telling people what religion to believe, like it's deeply held belief. And similarly, like for the state to say, well, you might have that gender identity, but we're not going to let you live in that gender or or recognize that gender. It's a real violation of, uh, of, um, you know, kind of principles of like um, liberty and autonomy. So that's, um, so that's, so that's why it really is, is a belief that everybody holds. Of course, people think, that when we hear the word gender identity, people think, oh, it's just trans, only transgender people have a gender identity. But in fact, of course, you know, everybody has a gender identity. Yeah. So that was basically um, the idea was that, you know, if we're just going to stick to that, even the ideals of like liberal humanism, the idea that transgender people don't get to inhabit their gender because uh, it, it offends the sensibilities of, of cultural traditionalists, it doesn't really, um, doesn't really provide a good rationale for the government to do that.
1: Right. Um, You use a heterodox method for transgender studies to to, to develop this book. Um, Could you talk a little bit about this method and and how it allows you to explore the concerns you raise and address in the book?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, So I've spent a lot of time trying to kind of unlock the magic, you know, this kind of magic key. Like, how can I figure out all these different policies about transgender people and sex classification? There's got to be some... um, you know, some magic uh, magic moment or, or way to unlock it, because I thought and ha- we had to figure out, like, what does the government think sex is? And then when I was looking at policies and when I decided to focus in on sex classification is that the states state like in the United States. And this is true partially in Canada. Though it's, it's a federal system, but sort of less so <laughs> because there's less jurisdictions. Um, in the United States, there's uh, sex can be defined by any government agency that is doing work with the public. So the, the State Department of Motor Vehicles, the State Department of Vital Statistics that does birth certificates, judges can define sex in any particular context. Any agency, from homeless shelters to jails, has the ability to define sex. So a lot of trans people find themselves in this Kafkaesque web of chaos and confusion and contradiction, where for one government agency, you might have an M and for another government agency, you might have an F. Um, and I was trying to kind of figure this out and try to think of like, what, what, what really is sex? How can we really define it? And of course, in gender studies, we spend a lot of time talking about sex and gender and the relationship between them. You know, Judith Butler says something like sex will turn out to have been gender all along. Um, and other folks who have a more biological, uh, you know, orientation who tend to be a little more right wing thinks that sex and sex and gender are, you know, should be pretty coterminous. And then my methodological kind of insight was for the purposes of this research is to not have a position on what sex really is. I decided to define sex for the purposes of this book as sex is the effect of, of a Uh, the effect of a government decision. So sex is whatever the government says it is. And states are entities whose decisions are backed by the force of law. And that really made it possible to think through some of the contradictions and policies I was looking at um, uh, and understand sex as an effect of government. And then we could see instead of what sex really is, we could see what sex really does, like how how it gets enacted in different places. And it's defined differently for different purposes. So that Um, methodological um, innovation, which some people find counterintuitive because they want to say, well, sex is biology or sex is gender or sex is chromosomes or sex is an effect of power. I just just put all that aside and kind of bracketed it. I mean, I review some of that literature in the book, but mostly for my own purposes, I kind of bracketed and just look at what states think sex is because they tend to define it in terms of the best way to accomplish whatever particular goal an agency has.
1: Right, that's that's fascinating. Um, your interest in this book, which which you've told us, lies in interrogating not what sex is, but what it does. Um, could you tell us about the possibilities that are generated for trans activism when sex is understood as a tool of governance?
2: Yeah, because I I think in. Activist circles, we are really good at talking about sex and doing trans 101 on gender identity and talking about non binary and explaining, like, you know, I think in court cases, the ACLU will always say in its briefs something like, sex is what's between your legs and gender is what's between your ears. They have all these kind of heuristics for explaining what sex is. And we have a whole, like, a whole tranche of people who, you know, went through college and university and understand complexity of sex and gender and have really sophisticated analyses of what sex and gender are. But that same doesn't apply to when we look at the state, like the sophistication with which we look at sex and gender just falls aside. When we look at the state, we kind of, you know, fall back into this kind of default assumption that the state is some sort of like neutral umpire or the state should be some sort of neutral umpire and with respect to transgender people it's just got things wrong and if we just rationally explain things and get the right experts to explain things in a policy brief or a legal brief then it will get fixed up and everything will be fine and so what i want us to do is have a much deeper and more thorough understanding of state structures and governance and 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 so they can understand or so we can all understand together how sex operates as a tool of governance so we can still have our same long-term goals of getting getting sex classification out of uh, getting the government out of that business but we also can understand like to do that actually requires a much more radical fundamental restructuring of what we call the state and the economy
1: right Um, you Called um, sex a transactional reality. Could you tell us a little more about this designation and the nature of this reality and its legal effects?
2: Yeah, so I think I, that's a phrase from Foucault. He's talking about, I think, in that. Moment, he's talking about madness or he might talk about sexuality that way but like where it's like it becomes real because it is you know made into something by the institutions and norms and practices of of a given you know group of people or discourse or way of doing things so it's of course is never saying like oh there is this thing called madness like mental illness he's talking about how madness you know uh, changes over the cent- over the eons and centuries, in different discursive um, constructions, and we can we can see the same with sex. And for for me, I even narrowed it even more to look at just sex as a transactional reality between like a government agency and um, and the people it's trying to regulate.
1: Right. Um, You write, and I quote, the gradual and piecemeal unmooring of the categories of male and female might well be a sign not of the political potency of purportedly radical gender politics, but of the diminishing salience of gender as a mechanism for maldistribution, at least for white people, Uh, unquote. Could you expand on
2: this? (laughs) You have got some good quotes. Um, Yeah. So it it starts a little bit with like looking at at this idea that... um, Looking at the idea that like I started off kind of criticizing folks who thought like who were disappointed in transgender people like a lot of folks this is definitely a part a, a certain strain in queer theory a certain strain in and feminist theorist theory and feminist legal studies were like trans people were going to deconstruct the gender binary we were going to be the kind of the the canary in the coal mine whatever metaphor you want to use we were kind of our goal was to kind of show that gender doesn't really exist or that it shouldn't be regulated the way it was um and and uh, you know on the other side of the coin of that expectation was that trans people are more radical or gender non-binary people are more radical and my my point on that is that like trans people non-binary people are neither here nor there you know we're just people right and to kind of a, a, a I suggest there's some kind of inherent radicality to those subject positions, I think, is, is mistake. It's a mistake. It's the mistake of identity politics is to assume that identity immediately produces a particular political position. And I think that's definitely true with transgender people. But I also think it's true even with, a, even with non-binary, like the suggestion that non-binary is inherently radical um, – you know, I'm not sure that we can we can say that. I just sat on a dissertation committee uh, of someone who, you know, made this you know, very long, thoughtful it wasn't philosophy, so it was super hard and smart, but I, I was able to understand most of it. But they made this kind of long thoughtful critique of like gender is a colonial category. Um, and so and non-binary gender is also kind of implicated in the same kind of colonial architectures that produced, you know, gender in these kind of racist contexts. So um, so, but what, I, what I'm trying to get at in, in my work is to say we need to actually do politics that kind of takes on existing power structures that result in some people getting much less stuff than other people in terms of the distribution of resources. And, and there are certain kind of neoliberalism, I think – uh, people like Adolphe would call that like uh, maybe left neoliberalism or representational neoliberalism, where like there's a corporation that has like all different kinds of people on its board of directors and all different kinds of people in its ads and it's amongst its associates, but it doesn't uh, fundamentally al- alter the kind of calculus of of power in terms of who gets what. And I do think that it's even possible that um, that kind of gender nonconformity and trans people get drawn into that. Like I think two or three times in the book, I should have just done it once, but I couldn't help myself. I refer to the fact that like in Pride Month, Goldman Sachs flies the transgender flag. And if Goldman Sachs, which is responsible, which is one of the institutions most responsible for income inequality and and like, you know, contemporary Uh, colonialism and like making sure the rich get richer and the poor get poor can fly the front transgender flag. We need to kind of interrogate like what exactly about transgender is assimilable and what is not and and look to a kind of broader
0: politics. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Right, absolutely. Um, you mentioned in the book that sex classification has furthered state projects such as surveillance, incarceration, nation building, and has become fundamental to governance. Could you tell us a little um bit more about this and and how the weaponization of sex can be subverted
2: yeah okay so um so one of the things i was looking at so they have a couple like there's two there's two kind of arguments in my book in my there is they're sort of chronological but also life is messy so i realize they're not completely chronological but one argument in the book was that the when it came to sex classification transgender people were not harmed we're not in a lot of these policies around sex classification were not written with the intention of harming transgender people, though that was the, uh, you know, that was the effect, but these policies around sex classification were baked into the system because the system wanted to make sure that like women didn't have the same things that men did in terms of, you know, uh, you know, voting or, uh, doctrine or applying for a credit card or those kinds of things. So, um, uh, so that's um, that's what, So sex in itself was a tool of governance, and then as I was as, as a as a, you know feminist liberal rights movement succeeded, and the state and the state lost its ability to treat men and women differently. Slowly over the course of the twentieth century, um, that made that lessened the stakes a little bit for transgender um, for transgender people, in the sense that like the stakes weren't so high if you if you let someone change from being male to female, and this is the most extreme case. In the in the question of marriage, so when I was working on this birth certificate policy, one of the things um, they never put it in the minutes, but they did say to it, say it to us, advocates, in a couple of you know offhand comments before the meetings when all the important stuff happens, um, was like actually we're worried that if we have a gender identity standard for birth certificates, that some cisgender lesbian will come in, say she's a transgender man, and then get a marriage license to marry her cisgender lesbian partner. And then there'll be a same sex marriage, even though one of them says they're a man. So, so it showed, it showed to me like the, the, the the fact that marriage was the, an institution governed by this opposite sex, you know, rule. Um, that was one of the last places that sex was really um, baked into the architecture. And in fact, in New York, New York had passed marriage equality in 2011, and it was only after 2011 that the city let it, let it, uh, loosened up its gender ident- its its birth certificate policy to make it a very good policy. Right now, you just can, you know, check a box M, F, or X. So I I realized that like oh we're kind of coming up against this huge institution of same sex marriage, and that's harming our problems. That's that's harming our uh, our our uh, rights. Another thing I realized when I was looking at some marriage cases involving transgender people, uh, there was, you know, most departments of motor vehicles for a long time have allowed trans people to change their sex classification. And in the early days, they would require surgery or they would require some sort of proof of, uh, of gender transition. And, you know, over time, advocates worked with the officials at DMVs and said, you don't really need to do that. And also advocates worked with medical professionals. So the letters written by medical professionals written are very carefully, you know, there'll be a letter saying though so and so has had all the medical treatment they need, you know, and from a policymaker's um, perspective, when they see the words, all the treatment they need, they think, Oh, that person has all had all the surgery has done everything. And from a trans, Uh, A medical professional who works in trans healthcare, all the treatment they need might be no medical interventions whatsoever. So sometimes this stuff was based on interesting linguistic constructions. But anyways, DMVs for a long time have made it possible for people to change their sex classification, and they were the first to kind of lower the obstacles, the first to kind of get rid of requirements for genital surgery or even medical transition at all uh but at the same time that we have all this you know pretty good policy making uh in state dmvs there's a whole there's a handful of cases basically almost every case involving um a trans person in marriage all but one uh turned out badly so trans people get married even before there was same sex marriage they got married all the time and um uh and but when marriages dissolve sometimes there's bad feelings so in a handful of cases um um the 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 marriages of the trans people were contested by by interested parties uh and, and appellate course, courts have ruled we're ruling this is like between 1999 and 2007 or so we're ruling like oh they can change all their documents they want but for the purposes of marriage their 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 sex is the sex they were assigned at birth so like there was a case in, in in um, Texas in 1999, I think, where this woman named Christy Lee Littleton, you know, she'd done everything. She changed all her documents. And then her husband died in a hospital and she was suing the hospital for medical malpractice. And the hospital's lawyers figured out, they're like, oh, wait, um if we contest her marriage, if we say she's not a legal marriage because she's a transsexual person, uh, then that marriage will be declared a same sex marriage, which is like a null marriage. And therefore, she actually wouldn't have standing to sue us at all for this medical malpractice. So that's what they did. And the court, uh, an appellate court in Texas decided that, you know. Uh, a surgeon can't change with a scalpel, something that God created at birth. So there are all these bad decisions on marriages involving trans people, even as there were good policies on identity documents. And it made me realize that like sex works differently depending on the particular, you know, agency dealing with it, because marriage is a very different purpose for the state than, um, driver's licenses. So, the purposes of driver's licenses is to kind of, you know, keep track of people. I kind of read that in the book and as like a kind of a spatial project. Like there's all these people over a given territory moving around. And how does the state keep track of people? Well, these are, with these identity documents. So when someone like me gets pulled over um, for a traffic ticket, it's not really helpful to the state for me to hand over an you know, identity document that lists me as as f because that's not how I'm presenting myself it's not even what I look like cuz I'm sort of a binary trans person um and so that's why the DMV policies were better and people think oh there's good policies and bad policies and the good policies are not transphobic and the bad policies are transphobic and certainly tr- policies have like transphobic effects but i realized that under thinking like using transphobia as the metric or as the analytical tool to understand policies was well, not helpful at all because it didn't let us see what the state was was doing so when it comes to marriage marriage is a very different governmental project so it's usually involved in kind of like uh, I have a good quote from Nancy F. cotton in there, which I sure cannot reproduce. But it's it's trying to kind of marry a people and tie it to the land through property, inheritance, anti-miscegenation laws, all these sorts of um uh, uh of policies that kind of kind of create a certain kind of like national racial construct and including trans people in that kind of upset upsets the whole uh apple cart in the sense that like when it's a trans spouse. Um, and most of the cases I was looking at were involving trans men the children that were born during the marriage were not the biological children of those fellows just out of uh, um, coincidence Uh, so the existence of a trans spouse kind of shows that like all the kind of Things that we have done, since common law onward to kind of pretend that the family is a biological unit and not a social legal cultural unit. It kind of gets amassed by the existence of a, a transgender men in the marriage. So is it really important that trans men or trans spouses be kind of kicked out of that um, uh, of that enterprise? So that kind of helped me understand the kind of what seemed like contradictions and policies between like these marriage decisions and driver's license decisions.
1: Yeah, this is this is incredibly um, insightful. Um, we are almost nearing the the end of this episode, but before we let you go, uh, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on?
2: So, in this book, I try to understand like what sex does for governments and how uh, these different definitions of sex for the different government projects. Um, and so, my new project is looking at like what gender is doing in these republican initiatives to strip transgender people of you know equality of rights of gender affirming healthcare of all these different kinds of um all, all these different kinds of things because we can say that we are in the united states we are we are at an extreme transphobic moment and i think that's very true but again like transphobia is just a word it's describing a situation but even compared to misogyny It doesn't really have an analytic power to it. It doesn't explain why like I like Kate Mann's definition of misogyny which is you know she describes sexism as the ideology that justifies you know uh, the women's subordination and misogyny is like the policing of the ideology so people who step outside that ideology are policed through misogynistic actions but with transphobia we don't even have a lot of we don't have an analytic to go, that goes with it so we so what I want to try to understand is like what gender is doing for the Republicans because it's not just that they believe that gender is something that's determined from birth and actually has it actually is like becoming a tool for them so i wanted to kind of dive into that and and spend a lot of time looking at that
1: yeah that's that's incredible um thank you so much for being on new works network and and being incredibly kind and patient throughout this process thank you so much
2: oh it's been my pleasure